Please be seated. <coughs> Good morning. Good morning. I have to start today with an, an apology. The, the last several times I've preached, there has been a, um, a song, some kind of music that came to my mind as a part of each one of those sermons. And, and uh, I'm sorry, but no music today. <laughs> okay. No song. I'm sorry. I apologize. If you want to leave now, that's okay. <laughs> I was disappointed, too. It was a trend that I wanted to keep going, but um, just didn't work out with the gospel today. Today, I want to talk about, about doubt. There's something very special about this uh, second Sunday of Easter. It's when we come back down to kind of real life. Easter is such a extravagant celebration of the resurrection and life and glory and no way we could keep that up 365 days a year. So we come back down to real life, real decisions that had to be made and to the reality of Thomas and his doubts. So I want to talk about doubt today. I want to give a shout out in favor of doubt. And I hope you'll come along on the journey. I'm a real big fan of St. Thomas's, by the way. He's a doubter by nature, and I am completely on his side. Okay? I mean, after all, imagine the scene there after Easter. A crowd of hysterical disciples have all convinced themselves that Jesus came back from the dead, right? And I would be right there with Thomas, shaking my head, feeling a bit self-righteous. I mean, Thomas knows D Jesus died the kind of death you don't come back from. There were spikes, there were spears, there was flogging. It was bloody. That seems like reasonable doubt to me. To me, doubt is reasonable. I mean, at least Thomas got to touch the wrists of Jesus and to poke his fingers into Jesus' bloody side. But for the most part, all we get to touch is a translation of the old story that has been mass-produced on miraculously thin sheets of gilded paper. And some days it feels pretty flimsy. So we pray, we sing, we go to church with other people who pray and sing, but always, if you're like me, there's the nagging, reasonable doubt that persists. And we wonder at times if perhaps we're all just here talking to ourselves. Fact is, it would be, it would be easy to take out the bulletin today and go through the Nicene Creed and talk with you about all the things that I have doubts about. But I personally have learned over the years that sharing the particulars of my doubts does little or nothing to make them go away. Instead, I've come to believe that doubt is a vital companion on the journey of faith, a critical, if not always kindly, friend 
that keeps us from succumbing hastily to easy answers, simple solutions, personal prejudices, and comfortable conclusions. The kind of friend that always thinks it's better to go deeper, to think harder, and to seriously consider taking the rougher path for once. And always just at the time when I'm ready to simply relax into the unquestioning simplicity of orthodoxy. On December the 11th of 1979, some time ago, Mother Teresa, the saint of the gutters, as she was called, went to Oslo, Norway. She dressed in her signature blue-bordered sari and shod in sandals, despite the below zero temperature, she received the ultimate worldly accolade, the Nobel Peace Prize. In her acceptance speech, she delivered the kind of message the world had come to expect from Mother Teresa. She said to the gathered throng, it's not enough for us to say, I love God, but I do not love my neighbor. She said, since in dying on the cross, God had made himself the hungry one, the naked one, the homeless one. Jesus's hunger, she said, is what you and I must find and alleviate. And she suggested that the upcoming Christmas holiday in 1979 should remind the world that radiating joy is real because Christ is everywhere, Christ in our hearts, Christ in the poor we meet, Christ in the smile we give, and in the smile that we receive. An inspiring message of faith. Yet less than three months earlier, in a letter to a spiritual confidant, she wrote with weary familiarity of a very different Christ, an absent Christ. She wrote, Jesus has a very special love for you, as she spoke to her friend. But as for me, as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me. Pray for me that I let him have a free hand. We now know from the publication of Mother Teresa's letters to her spiritual guides that she had a profound sense deeply profound and deeply painful sense of the absence of God in her life that began in 1948 and except for a brief five-week interlude in 1959 continued until her death in 1997. She would write in her private letters, what do I labor for? If there be no God, there can be no soul. And if there is no soul, then Jesus, you are also not true. Only twice in all her letters does she sound this despairing note of doubt about God's very existence. But she frequently bemoaned an inability to pray 
in the profound awareness of God's utter absence. But never, never once in all those years did she ever give up on her work of love and care and compassion for the poorest of the poor on the streets of Calcutta. In the midst of deep and agonizing doubt, Mother Teresa learned how to live with doubt, but to love with certainty. Over the years, I have discovered that there are actually quite a few skeptics in this world, like myself, maybe some in this room, who have a deep desire to remain connected to Christianity. For the most part, the church as a whole has not known what to do with her doubting children. Mostly, we are encouraged to keep our doubts to ourselves. Does that sound familiar? Or we've been advised, simply have more faith. And by faith, the church meant belief. You've got to believe better. Some seeking skeptics left immediately. Others tried hard to believe, but failed miserably, and then wandered away in grief. I believe it is time to welcome doubt to our community and make sure that everyone knows that doubt is embraced here, that our goal is not to banish doubt from our midst, but to welcome it in and to be like Mother Teresa and to cultivate the ability to live with doubt but love with certainty. I don't know if any of the rest of you noticed there were brief references in the secular media this week about the publication of a book called The Myth of Persecution by Candida Moss. She's a New Testament professor at the University of Notre Dame. Anybody else read those crazy little articles that pop up? I'm the only one. What does that say about me? (laughs) Miss Moss documents the emerging scholarly consensus that the Roman persecution of Christians was actually rather sporadic. Now, that's news to me. I mean, when I was a little kid, I was taught that those early years of Christianity were, you know, dominated by persecution, right? Lions in the Colosseum, correct? Isn't that what this story was? Well, it turns out that as we, as we learn more and more and, uh, about what happened in those days, the persecution of Christians was real, but not constant. There were brief, sporadic surges of persecution, and that at least some of the Christian martyrdom stories are really nothing more than theological tall tales. Scholars are now saying that it wasn't really pernicious persecution that helped the church to grow. No, they say, Christians had a secret weapon. The martyrs may have gotten all the press, but it was really ordinary Christians who got it done by the way they treated friends and strangers. According to uh, a writer, Rodney Stark, the author of a book called The Triumph of Christianity, Life in ancient Rome was brutal and nasty. 
Forget those antiseptic portraits of Roman cities you see in biblical movies like The Robe, okay? That's made up. Roman cities, he says, were overcrowded. Raw sewage ran in the streets. People locked their doors at night for fear of being robbed, and plagues were rampant. Soap had not been invented yet, and he says the stink of the cities in the summertime must have been astounding. You would have smelled a city miles before you got to it. Christians stood out in this context because they created a miniature welfare state to help the less fortunate. They took in infant girls routinely left for dead by their parents. They risked their lives to tend the sick when plagues hit and others fled in terror. They gave positions of leadership to women when many women had no rights and girls as young as 12 were simply married off to middle-aged men. Ordinary Romans might have thought Christians were a bit odd, Stark says, but they would have loved having them as neighbors. Christianity became so popular, in fact, that when Rome did occasionally unleash one of its sporadic waves of persecution, the empire couldn't stop the church's momentum. Stark says if you knocked off a bishop, there were 20 guys waiting to be bishop next. It was Christian belonging and caring, not the blood of martyrs, that drew many people in. The early church, though, was radically inclusive in its context. First century Rome was undergoing globalization. The peace of Rome made travel easier, so people left their homes and tribal ties for other places in the empire. The empire was filled with rootless and excluded people, immigrants, traders, slaves, and the Christian message offered guidelines for living in this strange new world. Its universal message, its proclamation of equality, unconditional love, offered everyone in the Roman Empire a new family, a new community, a new way to live. I would suspect that even early Christians had doubts. Oh yes, there was Thomas. And I would guess that the fact that the story of Thomas occurs so quickly after the resurrection is testimony that Thomas had a lot of friends who felt just like he did. And the church wanted to address those people and give them a home. But even with their doubts in those early days, along with Thomas, they let nothing not their doubts, not their fears, nothing stand in the way of loving with certainty. I think that doubting Thomas would be proud of us if we would do the same.